Let's pray together. Your perfect will in your perfect way. Lord, this is what we want for our lives. Lord, this is what we want this morning. It's not to please ourselves, but to please you. Lord, not to be trapped by anxiety and questions, but to trust you. To have a resilient faith. To be a people who reflect your glory, Lord, by how we trust you. So, Lord, we pray that you, this morning, build in us, through your word, as your people, a steadfast trust. And, Lord, encourage us to pursue you in relationship and to talk to you rather than about you. And, Father, as we look into the book of Habakkuk, we pray that you bless us. We pray that you build us up. We pray that you encourage us. And we pray that you move us to rejoicing, not in ourselves, but in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Good morning. This morning we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, if you want to open there. And uh, when Denny and Jim a few weeks ago asked me to preach, I, I started asking the Lord what I should preach on. In some ways, it's a privilege to get to come and just do one sermon. And sometimes you're tempted to do the entire Bible. And uh, so I thought about a lot of passages. But recently in John and Chris and I's Sunday school class, we have been teaching through the Minor Prophets, and I had the privilege to teach Habakkuk. Habakkuk, like the other minor prophets, is not a minor book. It's not because it's unimportant, but because it's short. And I thought Habakkuk, as I taught it, it really surprised me in how it built up my faith in God and how it really helped me to think about what does it mean to pursue relationship with God and what does it look like to struggle with God? Do we not all struggle? Do we not all face difficult circumstances? Do we not all have burning questions that surface? And the book of Habakkuk really stands apart, and it is this very personal book. Habakkuk's the only prophet that, in the entire book, he does not speak to God's people on behalf of God. Instead, it's exactly the reverse. He speaks to God on behalf of God's people. And so Habakkuk gives us this unique perspective into the life of the prophet and into the life of faith. And I thought, boy, it'd be really great if we could go through the entire book. Because it's in the whole narrative of Habakkuk, its arc, that we see how Habakkuk's faith moves from this questioning, wavering, anxious faith to this resilient rejoicing faith. So I decided let's do the entire book. Now as we dive into the book, I'll confess we're not going to read every verse and that might feel a little different, but I hope to show you a good sense of what the entire message of this book is. One of the most enduring songs of the Christian faith is It Is Well by Horatio Spafford. It's a song we sing here regularly 
at Kenwood, and the story behind the song is nothing short of incredible. Maybe you've heard it. Spafford and his family uh, lived in Chicago, and they planned to travel to Europe in 1873 for a trip overseas, and Spafford was held back by business. Uh, actually, because of the Chicago fire, he had some troubles. So his wife and four daughters went on ahead of him and crossed the Atlantic. And uh, somewhere in the Atlantic, their ship struck another vessel, and it sank. And his four daughters drowned. His wife sent him a telegram when she arrived in Europe that is now famous that said, saved alone. When Spafford followed across the Atlantic and as his ship crossed near the spot where his four daughters had passed away, he penned the words of, it is well with my soul. Consider one of the lines, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's likely that many of us sitting in this room have experienced personal tragedy. We for sure all experience difficulty and trial. And the degree and frequency of such difficulty and trial, both in our lives and in the world, is hot. It's common in our news cycle to read about mass shootings or drug-related deaths or unjust laws or wicked rulers rising up and oppressing their peoples. And these tragedies, whether they're in the world out there or they're close at home to us, can cause untold agony and grief. Have you asked yourself the question, where is God in all of this? If you lost someone you cared about as deeply as Spafford did, his four daughters, would you respond as he did and be able to say, it is well with my soul? Of course, we know that adverse circumstances can cause our abiding faith to wane. We know that injustice and evil can cause our how long, O oh Lord, to turn to a how could you, O oh Lord. And it's the prophet Habakkuk who teaches us how to struggle in these kind of circumstances. And it's Habakkuk teaches us how to cultivate a resilient faith in God. This is the kind of Godward faith that can bounce back from tragedy like rubber bounces back when it's put under pressure. The prophet Habakkuk lived in a time of injustice and violence and tragedy that is every bit equal to our own, if not worse. Let's, let's zoom out briefly and let's catch up on where we're at in history as we read the prophet Habakkuk. It's around 620 to 605 B.C., King Josiah, the godly King Josiah, is either on the throne or has just uh, died in battle. Okay? And politically, things are a mess for God's people in Judah. Uh, the kingdom of Assyria that was to their east had reigned for nearly a century and had brought stability. And now Assyria had fallen off the map and into the vacuum had stepped this nation known as Babylon. And Babylon was this vicious bloodthirsty nation that raised the standing army larger 
than the ancient world had ever seen. They are caught in the middle between Babylon to the east and Egypt to the south, and the pressure cooker is on politically. Socially, things are not much better, as they're really like kind of the Gotham of the Batman stories, if you're familiar. The poor are oppressed. Wicked and corrupt leaders are reigning. Injustice is turned so upside down that wickedness is rewarded. Politically, Babylon's rising. Socially, injustice is reigning. And then, spiritually, God's people had fallen so far away from the Lord that they even lost the law. Do you know the story of Hilkiah, King Josiah's priest, finding the book of the law in the temple, and it brought about this great reformation where they celebrated this great Passover? It was just a flash in the pan. God's people did not care about his law. Instead, actually, they worshipped any number of ancient Near Eastern deities like Baal or Molech. Some stooped so low that they would even sacrifice their children to this god, Molech, to gain his favor. Let's be honest. If you're getting lost in all those weeds, here's the point. The situation was dire for God's people. In fact, it had not been this dire perhaps since they were in Egypt as slaves under Pharaoh. Was God being faithful to his promises to establish his people as a light to the nations? Would God hear their cry once again and deliver them as he had before? At least the faithful like Habakkuk who remained? Was God even there? And if he was, did he care? It's this upheaval of the very fabric of society that causes the prophet Habakkuk to cry out to God for help. And the book reads like a journal, a personal journal written by a man whose faith in God is under severe fire and whose questions for God were as basic to humankind and as basic to us as they can get. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we'll see Habakkuk's first question, where are you? And then in verse 12 of chapter 1, all the way down to the end of chapter 2, he'll ask another question, why are you doing this? God tells him Babylon is coming, and he can't believe it. Then in chapter 3, we will see his journey come to completion as he writes this psalm of trust and resolution in God, singing, I trust in you. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. Let's look at verse 1 in his first question where he says, where are you? Here's what the text says. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Given the presence of so much violence and injustice, Habakkuk is very concerned about God's perceived silence and his absence. It's as if God is not even there to hear Habakkuk's cry. And Habakkuk is saying to God, how can you continually look at such defiant wickedness? 
and seem to just yawn and drum your fingers. Habakkuk is concerned that God no longer cares. In verse 4, he observes not only does it seem like God is absent, he observes that the law is absent. Look at verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Law translates here the word from Hebrew, Torah. And it, it really has this idea of instruction. The law, we can think of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These were given to God's people as a gift to them so that they would know how to live and to flourish as a society. And yet here the law is described and personified as something that is paralyzed. It cannot function as it ought to. It cannot help them do what they are to do to help the poor and to right wrongs and to promote love and to foster worship and gender obedience of God and most importantly to execute justice. In fact, there is a justice present in Judah and and Habakkuk says the law goes forth, but its justice goes forth, but it is what? Perverted. The law has been twisted to serve crooked purposes. So you can understand why Habakkuk might say, God, are you paying attention? Are you there? And what's tremendous about the book of Habakkuk is God actually answers him. And, and the, the, the surprise of this should not be lost to us, that there is a real dialogue here between the prophet Habakkuk and the God of the universe. Habakkuk brings these questions, and God answers. Look at verse 5. He said, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. This is God speaking. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. God replies to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I am here and I am present and I am presently working. But the work that I am doing to remedy this situation of injustice is really going to test your faith. You're not going to like what my plans are, Habakkuk. My good and righteous plans are that I'm sending Babylon to judge my people. Imagine what it would have been like for Habakkuk to hear those words, to hear that this nation with this huge standing army that is known for how fierce it is. It is known for not just winning battles, but for upending entire nations. Imagine how Habakkuk must have tremored. Verses 7 to 11 describe the menacing Chaldeans. And here, Chaldeans, we can just read it as a synonym for Babylon. The Chaldeans were a tribe from that area of the world that rose to power and established this nation, Babylon. Verse 7 reports that not only are they fierce, but they're arbiters of their own morality. It says they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verses 8 to 9 report that they are swift and unassailable. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. And verses 10 and 11 describe their scorn for all men and how they worship themselves. Look at verse 10. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Here's the point. This wicked, immoral, unjust nation are the righteous God's chosen instrument. No doubt many of y'all have read or watched the Marvel Comics movies. One of my favorite characters in those movies is Captain America. This guy's integrity is uncompromising and unassailable. He will do no wrong. And he's probably the most resilient character in all of the stories. You could argue that point, but just go with me here. I uh, think this guy, right, sometime in World War II, uh, so the story goes, he crashed a plane into the Arctic ice to save the world and lay there frozen for decades and survived. You don't get much more resilient than that. And Captain America is this guy. He goes through trial after trial like that where it seems like the guy is dead. He's gone. And he bounces back every time. And he never relents when new evil comes and a new foe comes. He always steps up to fight and to oppose the villain. He refuses to sit by idly and let the world suffer. Are you bothered by injustice like Captain America? How about like Habakkuk is bothered by what he sees going on in his society? If you aren't bothered enough by the world situation, and this is true of me and it's true of you, we may all think too little of God. Habakkuk doesn't. What do you do in the face of evil? Do you find yourself, when you're facing trials or you're trying to understand some terrible tragedy, whether it's out there or it's close to home, do you find yourself more talking about God or do you do like Habakkuk does here and talk to God? I'll confess to you guys that I often find myself talking about God. God, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my wife or to Chris or to good friends about what's going on in my life and what is God doing and how can I understand it. And I can be quicker to do that than to go to God and say, God, help me understand. Habakkuk teaches us that God is the friend of the honest doubter who'd rather talk to God than talk about him. Crying out to God in the face of injustice or a terrible situation can actually show your trust in God and can help you gain confidence in God. It shows an assurance when you go to God in prayer and you sit there before his word and struggle to understand. You show a confidence that God does have an answer. And stop and consider. Habakkuk here is showing us a real relationship. There's a real back and forth here between God and Habakkuk. And notice that God is not put off by Habakkuk's struggle. 
We can think we, we've got to have everything put together before we come to struggle before God or even before we come to struggle with one another. Habakkuk teaches us that Christianity is about a relationship with the God of the universe. And here, even in the early verses, Habakkuk, by implication, is telling us to seek God, to pursue him, and to be found by him. Verses 1 to 11, Habakkuk asks, where are you? God says, I'm here. I'm sending Babylon. Verse 12, his second question begins. And he says, why are you doing this? And his cry here in this section intensifies as he finds the Lord's answer utterly bewildering. You can almost hear Habakkuk muttering under his breath, Babylon? Babylon? And so now his complaint shifts to, why are you doing this? Why are you sending Babylon? Look at verse 12 where he begins with the description of the Lord. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Notice this question here in the accusation. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. I want you to notice here in verse 12, twice, the words Lord is in all caps. This is for God's covenant name, Yahweh. And Habakkuk is using his covenant name. And he also calls him my Lord. Again, here we see this evidence that Habakkuk knows God. He has a relationship with him. And as such, he turns to God's character to protest his actions. Habakkuk connects the eternality of God, his covenant commitments, and his moral purity and holiness. And he cites all these attributes of God to say, can such a God act this way? By recalling the covenant name of Exodus, where Yahweh met Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said, tell me your name, and he said, I am who I am. It's as if Habakkuk is asking the question, are you who you say you are? And a fuller reading shows that Habakkuk's logic is, is going something like this. Lord, you're, you're unchanging in your covenant commitments to us, and you are good and you are holy. And so you cannot have destined your people for judgment. No, God, if you are who you say you are, you have not destined Judah, your people, for judgment. You have destined Babylon for judgment. Do you see the logic here? Do you see his struggle? He is saying to God that even though Judah is so wicked, there is a remnant. There is faithful ones in Judah. And so Judah has a moral superiority to Babylon. Judah's not as wicked as Babylon, Habakkuk argues. And then he asks, why are you silent? Why are you doing nothing, O God? Fix the situation. Don't send Babylon. So we pull back here. We see that really Habakkuk's having two struggles at the same time. On the one hand, 
He's struggling with the fact of how can a pure and holy God use a wicked nation like Babylon as his instrument? We don't have time to go into all this today, but the Bible affirms that can God, the good and holy God, can he do this and remain good and holy? The Bible affirms over and over, yes. Other hand, Habakkuk is concerned that God's plans are not going to remedy the problem. Think about this. One wicked nation, Judah, is going to be replaced with a more wicked nation. How does that fix the problem? And let's notice here that Habakkuk's turning to God is extremely honest. Right? There, there's a tone of accusation here in his questions. No doubt he is respectful. But he shows us the way to struggle with God. Notice how much he talks about God's character. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil. This is a man who knows his God, and he knows his scripture, and he is struggling to square fact, biblical fact, with historical reality. Do you ever find yourself in that place? I do. It's not all the time, but there are times in life when things happen either out there or in my own life personally, and I go, this doesn't make sense. I thought, God, you promised to bless me. I thought, God, you promised to make life go well if I just trusted you. And God, I don't understand or I don't deserve this. I think if we're honest, we're we're all there at one time or another. When you're there, and maybe you're in that kind of moment right now in your life, Let Habakkuk encourage you to take the struggle with God, to be honest with God. Yes, be respectful. Do not forget to fear our Lord. He is the creator of the universe. He is also our redeemer who sent his son to die for us. And he cares deeply for us. Let's continue in verse 14 where we see this description of Babylon. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk says here, are you going to let Babylon keep destroying nations? Are you going to just let them run free? In chapter 2, the Lord's answer comes. The righteous shall live by faith. Verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Habakkuk puts himself in this position of waiting, because he thinks his questions deserve an answer. And the Lord brings an answer in verses 2 to 3, and he basically says to Habakkuk, I'm not changing my mind. 
The vision is sure. Babylon is coming. It's so sure. He basically tells Habakkuk, erect a big billboard on the side of the road and put the words on it, Babylon is coming. Then in verse 4, Yahweh contrasts the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The soul of the wicked is puffed up in its pride and self-reliance, but just a little pinprick will cause the soul of the puffed up one to wither. But the faithful among God's people, they despise such self-reliance and they put their faith and their trust in God. This is the heartbeat of the book of Habakkuk. This is his message. What characterizes your faith? Is it a resilient faith that turns and trusts? Or do you rely on your own understanding? Notice the connection between the righteous one and faith in verse 4. The call to live by faith teaches us that faith is not just some one-time mental ascent. Faith is a way of life. It's a steadfast and resilient trust in God despite any circumstance. The righteous person trusts that God is good in his conduct toward us. And he is wise in his plans for us. And he is loving in his disposition toward us. At all times, despite any circumstance, God is good and loving and wise. The key phrase, but the righteous will live by faith, summarizes the path of life that God has set out for all his people. This phrase is used in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 by Paul the apostle to argue that righteousness that is required for us to have before God always comes through faith. Hebrews chapter 10, the author there even applies this phrase, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, to encourage believers to endure and to persevere in the midst of trying circumstances. The way of faith has always been the way of God's people. A modern day example of a believer who struggled greatly with the rise of a wicked and evil nation is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer is famous or perhaps infamous for speaking out against Hitler and the Nazi regime and even participating in a plan to try and assassinate Hitler. He was caught and his plans were foiled and he was put into jail and mistreated there and eventually hanged for his crimes against the German nation. Whether or not we could debate all day, should have Dietrich Bonhoeffer done that or not? Was that wise? Was that a godly thing to do? But if you've read his letters from prison, they are really tremendous letters that exemplify a life of faith and trusting in the Lord in the midst of very trying circumstances. It's not to say that he didn't struggle, but he believed that it was in the struggle with God that the answers really came. Listen to this. He says, The blessedness of waiting is lost on those who cannot wait, and the fulfillment of promise is never theirs. They want quick answers to the deepest questions of life and miss those times of anxious waiting, seeking with patient uncertainties until the answers come. He knew if you're going to get answers with God, if you're going to gain a Godward perspective that gives you a biblical perspective and a Christian perspective on what is happening in the world, 
that it requires times of anxious waiting and struggling before the Lord and with the Lord. Where do you turn when trouble comes knocking? To what extent is seeking and waiting on the Lord a spiritual discipline in your life? Maybe you're someone who's always relied on your own understanding and you prefer to talk about God rather than to him. Let Habakkuk be an encouragement to you to seek out God, to talk to him, to rely on him, and to struggle with him. The righteous live by faith. And perhaps you're visiting today and you're not sure if you can rely on God or if you trust all these promises that he's made. After all, the world that we live in is corrupt and evil and unjust. And you know that deep down, you are just as corrupt and broken as the world. The answer to your struggle lays at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. God put him up on that cross to pay for your sins and to right the sins, not of just you and me, but of the whole world. And three days later, God raised him from the dead as a testimony that he had defeated sin and death and injustice. His resurrection is also a promise that he will return to wipe out all evil, to wipe away every tear, to correct all injustice. It has been written on tablets. You can put it on a billboard. It is plain for all to see. Jesus is coming. So turn from your sin and your self-reliance and put your trust in Jesus. Do not delay Maybe you're sitting next to a believer and they can, after the service, or even right now, pray with you and share the gospel with you. Let's return to the rest of chapter 2. Habakkuk, in the rest of chapter 2, he explains Babylon's coming judgment. And really, down all the way from verse 5 to 20, he describes Babylon's treachery. Five times he pronounces woe upon them and describes how their own wicked actions are going to turn on their head. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. He's pronouncing woe on them for their worship of idols. He continues, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The message of Habakkuk is the same message emphasized by Jesus and all the New Testament writers. God will judge the wicked, including Babylon. So God's answer to Habakkuk's questions are, yes, I'm going to use Babylon to come judge Judah, but there is a day coming when I'm also going to judge Babylon for their wickedness. I have not let their vile practices and their unjust behavior go unnoticed. I will judge them. Habakkuk is learning that faith and fact are not always compatible with the world of sense and sight. Sense and sight is not the whole world. Habakkuk learns that there, there is a whole world of justice that humans cannot comprehend. That only God fully comprehends in his plans for history. And his people, we, must accept by faith 
what we cannot confirm in fact. Let's look at chapter 3 quickly. So Habakkuk prays, where are you? Then he prays, why are you doing this? And God answers. And now Habakkuk sings this beautiful psalm of resolution, I trust in you. This is some of the most beautiful verses in all the scripture. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigeonoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk appears to have gone back either in his head or with a Bible open back through Scripture to review God's acts and conduct in history. And he says, God, the way you acted for Noah and for Moses and for Israel and for David and for all these great characters throughout the Old Testament, I want you to revive that great delivering work. But he knows that Babylon is coming. So he prays, God, in judgment, in wrath, remember mercy. Verses 3 to 7, and really all the way down to verse 15, he reviews who the Lord is, and he reviews his acts. And these, these verses are chock full of Scripture. Okay? This is a lesson to us to, to read our Bibles, to know our Bibles, because as Habakkuk seeking answers, yes, he hears directly from the Lord, but he also goes to the Word to remind himself of who his God is. Look at verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the lights. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Look at verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What is he talking about here? Here Habakkuk is celebrating God's universal kingship. This word splendor was a word that Deuteronomy says the king of Israel was to be endowed with. And this splendorous king, Yahweh, in verse 4, is marching to battle for his people. And it remembers these times of plague and pestilence and arrows flashing forth and God coming on his chariot. He's talking about the Yahweh of Sinai and the Yahweh of the wilderness who at times broke out in judgment against God's people, and at other times saved them and delivered them. He's wanting the Yahweh who led Israel through the wilderness to now lead Habakkuk through his own wilderness. Verses 8 to 15 turn to the Exodus, God's great delivery of Israel from Egypt. And here, you can, you can hear he's expecting God to deliver Israel in a great second Exodus, this time not from Egypt, from, but from Babylon. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. It's language of rivers and sea and chariots and arrows flashing forth recalls the Exodus and recalls Exodus 15 when they sang this song celebrating how Yahweh came and he shot his arrows at Pharaoh and his armies and they and their chariots were drowned in the sea. 
The chariot language might also recall when Elisha prayed to God, they were going to battle against Syria. And what did he see across all the hills? Thousands of God's chariots covered in fire. He's praying for God to save in the midst of judgment. In verse 13, he recalls even the promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God promised a day when his anointed one, the Messiah, would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. He is praying for God in judgment to save to redeem. How do you think of God? Do you, like Habakkuk, think of God in biblical categories? Or are your categories more like the world? To be honest, these categories are not popular in our culture. But Habakkuk 3 reminds us of why we must be people of the word. We have to teach the word and preach it and sing it and memorize it and meditate on it. Why? Because this is how we know who our God is. And this is how we can find a confident faith that God will act today. And God will act tomorrow as he always has. This is the exact confidence that Habakkuk gets. Look at verses 16 where Habakkuk is resolved to trust God. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me he's emotional babylon is coming he's upset but notice what he says yet i will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us quietly wait he has a quiet resolve before God that God's plans for Israel and Judah and him are good and wise. In verse 17, he predicts the desolation of the land that will come when Babylon arrives. It's almost as if Judah is going to be uncreated, as if creation itself is going to be reversed. Look at 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. The land's going to be de devastated. But despite utter devastation, Habakkuk has resolved to live by a resilient faith and trust in God's purposes. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk rejoices because he is confident that ultimate victory will come. Having feet like a deer echoes the words of the Davidic king who will have triumph over his enemies even treading on high places has this idea of having victory over one's foes and so Habakkuk is rejoicing because when God comes to judge the nations he's not just going to come to judge the nations but he's also going to come to save and deliver his people and so we can see here in the narrative arc of Habakkuk that he's moved from this questioning 
concerned, even accusing faith to this resilient, trusting faith in God's promises, in God's character, in God's tested and proven actions in history. I want to briefly pull back and offer a few really brief takeaways for you from the book of Habakkuk. I hope you'll go back through this week and read through it and consider it. Number one is that faith in God is about perseverance over time. Faith in God is about perseverance over time. See trials as an opportunity to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. Habakkuk shows that a true relationship is a conversation and it develops over time. Number two, read your Bible a lot. The Bible, God's word, is our seedbed of understanding who God is. It's how we know him. Three, talk to God instead of about God. Those of us with seminary degrees especially can be guilty of this. We talk about God a lot, but we don't talk to God as much as we ought or even how we ought to. And by the way, when you talk to God, don't feel like you have to mind your P's and Q's. We can all be tempted in our kind of context that we always have to have everything together. Habakkuk does not have things together, right? Remember chapter 1 where he's nearly accusing God. Remain respectful, but God can handle it. And he can take you on the same kind of journey from an anxious questioning to a confident and resilient faith. Habakkuk's song of trust is not so different from Spafford's song, It Is Well. Consider this line, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Our God is faithful and he is calling us to let this blessed assurance control that he is moving purposes toward the history, towards his appointed purposes, and that he remains good and attentive and caring to us. Jesus indeed is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard the report of you. We pray that you will speed the coming of Jesus, that you will right wrongs, execute justice, and establish your glory over the face of the earth. Until such time, we pray that you grant us the courage to live with a resilient faith in you, just like Habakkuk. It's in the name of Jesus, the one who has conquered, that we pray. Amen.